do have one question on Yudi. Uh, for Indian children growing up outside of India, do you think it is necessary to learn their native language? Yeah, I think I, I'm a firm believer that language, a language is a, like an ecosystem. It's not just con conveying ordinary things, you know, get a cup of coffee or whatever here and there. Language contains a lot of literature, a lot of philosophy, a lot of thought. And there are words that don't exist in another language, that don't exist in, in, in English. Because in, in our language, we have, we have captured our experience for thousands of years. And, and so when you learn the language, you learn the nuance, you learn really how to feel like in, like a, like in Indian. So I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, I made the mistake for my kids. We had them knowing Hindi very well when they were kids. But when they started going to school, uh, in the private school between which they went to, there weren't other Indians. Now there are more Indians, but at that time there were, were only white people. And so they felt very kind of alienated. And so somebody gave us his wrong advice that if, there's, if they know Hindi, a lot of Hindi, they'll also be mixed up you know, in, their, in their school. That is wrong advice. You, you, you actually, you should proudly present yourself to the class that I'm bilingual. I also have my native language. Let the teacher even know. And they have to respect that. So, so, but later, we salvaged it. We salvaged it by uh, you know, getting them back into, into this. So I would say the mother tongue is the system of knowledge, system of thinking contained in that mother tongue. A mother tongue is also a lot, there are a lot of ideas in, built into the language. And so if that is a language you are raised in, it affects the wiring of the brain. And they've done some neurological studies that people who know a certain language, a certain wiring, certain wiring, hard wiring of the brain. People who are bilingual have more complex thinking patterns. People who know three languages have even more complex brain wiring. So it is, a, it is a matter. I would say on the same topic that mantra is very important. Mantra is different than language because, you know, mantra has different levels of speech. There is the, there is the external speech, there is the internal speech, then there is pasyanti, which is subconscious, unconscious, you know, then there is para, which is transcendental. So when you are, these mantras are not arbitrary sounds. These mantras have been discovered, like you discovered scientific knowledge. These mantras have been discovered by rishis, and a particular mantra contains a certain vibration which produces some effect. So a mantra, it is very important that, it, you know, I was doing, a, at the tsunami time, I was, we, we sponsored a whole village in uh, Nagapatinam, and uh, I, did, I took a camera crew to make video, and then uh, Swami Dhenan Saraswati's village is nearby, his birthplace is nearby. So we went and did a documentary there. And I remember I was walking with the camera crew near Swamiji's, uh, uh, you know, where he has a college. And uh, we heard chanting. So we went and we saw there was this pandit. And he had uh, 20 boys sitting on the floor of a veranda. And they were chanting. So we said, can we interview you? And yeah, he said. The first question I asked because at that time I had not understood this. First question I asked is, do they know the meaning of what they are being taught? And he says, no. So I said, then isn't it uh, silly to teach them? He says, no. Uh, they are too young to understand the meaning. We are putting the vibration in them. And the vibration is like a seed. It's there in them. And it's just become part of them. Like you are humming a song. You know, you have a favorite song. You are humming a song. And then you are even unconsciously, the song is humming in, by itself. You are not even consciously doing it. This is how what happens with the mantra. 
that you just go on repeating the mantra, it just becomes part of you, it becomes a vibration. So they take a word, then they take two words, then take a whole line, and then they take them whole shloka. So like that, gradually certain uh, mantras, they are having them memorize. And his strategy was very smart. He said, this is our tradition. You first incorporate the vibration, and then as you grow older, this vibration will produce an effect on you. And then you gradually begin to understand mentally what it means. So it is not that the mind comes first, it is the vibration comes first. So this is very interesting. I, I wrote this whole thing in being different because I thought this guy taught me something. So that is what I think. Okay, so what we are disrupting is uh, in the book uh, West, uh, being different, I've mentioned this in a lot of detail, there is a concept I have called Western Universalism. So there's a whole Western history, Western philosophy, their ideas, their, their experiences, uh, they have done a very good job of developing their narrative and exporting it because they had a colonial authority and they had language and they had power, so they've exported it to all the corners of the world. And the global discourse is really the Western discourse, kind of Western idea. And to modernize, people think that you have to Westernize. So we have to disrupt that. And a good example is how China has done it. China has said that they are Mandarin and Confucian thinkers. Confucius was their uh, thinker. And Confucius, Confucianism is their idea, their, their philosophy, Confucianism, Taoism. And they are saying when we modernize, we are not westernizing. We are, have, we are developing a Confucian modernity. It's like saying we are becoming dharmic modern. That sort of idea. So we are not leaving who we are as Confucius, Confucian people, nor are we leaving Mandarin. But we are going to learn English as a second language. And we are going to adopt all the science, technology, modernity, but on our own terms, using our own paradigm in our own framework. So the Chinese, because they never got colonized for such a long period of time, have maintained that continuity. And so they're in a better position. We got colonized. In fact, we got more colonized after the British left. I would, I would argue that the, in the last 60, 70 years, we've become more colonized and more alienated from who we are. Because now it's the brown side trying to become more white than the white. And so this is the problem we're having of inferiority complex. So the disruption is challenging these. Challenging the inferiority complex, challenging the colonized mind, challenging this anti-Hindu, anti-Indian civilization mindset which is built into media and the IAS people and all the institutions are like that. It is not like Narendra Modi can push a button and solve the problem. This has happened over a thousand years and it will take a long time. So we are so colonized, not only by the anglicized British way of thinking, but also the Mughal Islamic way of thinking. This whole Sufism, you know, the whole, and the whole Hindi is so filled with Urdu, Persian words. I was amazed when I went to Turkey for a holiday, how many words are Turkish that we thought are Hindi words. But I asked them, there are Turkish, these are Turkish words that we adopted because the Turks came and ruled over us. So we've been, we've been bringing in these kind of things 
And I think the meaning of what we are, who we are, changes as a result of too much of this. You see, so we need to disrupt this tendency that uh, the more I'm alienated, the better. The more uh, I'm uh, mimicking somebody else, uh, and uh, you know, the better. That whole trend line has to change. So how it affects us in our daily lives is, uh, you know, we should we should be very clear that a child could be speaking Hindi or Tamil or Telugu at home or Gujarati or whatever at home and be an A student. We've had these kids who win the spelling bee and they're speaking Tamil at home. There is nothing wrong, there's no, nothing unmodern, un-American about being who you are in your private life. They should be learning mantra, they should be learning our philosophy, they should be learning some bhakti, uh, they should be learning these kind of things as children. And yet they should be able, we should be able to produce technology and medical breakthroughs and make money and do all of that uh, why, without losing the sense of cultural heritage. So that is the balance I am looking for. Okay, okay. We should be learning from everybody and, and we should be appropriating like they're appropriating. But the West, when they are appropriating, they're not leaving their DNA. The DNA or ideology is theirs and they're appropriating ideas. Now they're appropriating yoga but putting it into a cultural context of Christianity. So it's not like they're giving up Christianity in order to have yoga. They're trying to incorporate it. So we can include, you know, all this new technology stuff on a platform of our own civilization. This is the cutting edge of where the research has to be. Because right now what has happened is the huge asset base of dharma, which is very important to the modern world, is being decontextualized out of dharma, put into free play, and then recontextualized into Western civilization, Judeo-Christianity or Western enlightenment and so on. So it's being alienated from its own roots. We have to have that strength of uh, foundation, dharma foundation, so that it can actually import things into it. We should, and we have done that in the past. If you look at the history, uh, our knowledge has been expanding throughout. It is not like we were static people. Uh, the smritis are updated, a lot of influence we keep incorporating, but without losing uh, our foundation. What has, dis what has happened is now that the foundation is gone. The Sanskrit schools are shut down. They this, uh, uh, what is his name, Macaulay was very successful, a lot of these guys, in basically getting, closing our, uh, the, closing our past to us and putting in, in, in its place a very abusive history of who we are so that we are ashamed of it and spreading that very abusive history of who we are so we don't even want to be uh, associated with it. So reclaiming that is a very important job. And this is a very huge, you see, I know how huge the problem is because I'm a researcher. And every time I uncover one thing, I, I, I solve one thing, I uncover 10 more questions. Every research problem I solve, I find 10 more problems which are yet to be solved. So my uh, 20 years ago when I started, if I had a list of what work has to be done, today the list of what work has to be done is much bigger because I'm discovering how serious this matter is. And in the process, there's also the excitement of how great there is, how much greatness there is in our civilization that people don't know. So this is a positive excitement. It is not a gloomy excitement. It's an excitement that says, wow, if we were to know this, 
You see, I could spend you a whole day just talking in short, short ways what are all the nuggets of, you know, gems that we have which we have forgotten. I could do the whole day just on that. But this, to really bring it out, publish it, get it properly uh, accepted and turned into school material and so on, is a lot of project. And that is what we have to do. So with that rich foundation, we can assimilate from other people also. Chinese are... Uh, you see, there's a difference between Microsoft Office in Indian languages and Mandarin. In Indian languages, the Microsoft Office allows you to have font, so you can have Tamil font or Hindi font, but the commands are in English. Okay, So you say save, open, close. Now, what does save mean to an Indian? I mean, we don't, we don't think of save as, you know, what, that, what, what it means in that context. So, what would be our term? And, and the, the, the fact that uh, every person in India wants to be in technology and has to learn some English vocabulary, the commands, is an issue. But Mandarin office, the commands are also in Mandarin. Not just font-wise, but also what it says. In our... Uh, so there is, a, there is an issue, you know, they have, they have decided that they are going to keep their Mandarin uh, language and script and uh, ideology of uh, Confucian thought and they're going to get as uh, modernized as possible, they're going to have the greatest, uh, you know, spacecraft and all this high tech which they are producing and yet those guys, those engineers, they are all Mandarin speaking. So they haven't abandoned that. And I think we have I, pockets of that, I, I know some ISRO people and they're cutting-edge, top space organization. They're all, most of them are Hindus. Most of them are doing their mantra. They're doing their ritual. They are speaking in their own language at home and they are not ashamed of it. So we have good successes like that also. ISRO is a very good example of, they did not want to get westernized nor to get modernized. They kept their, kept their identity. But the call center in India wants to change your name to Sally. So you say, hi, I'm Sally. And uh, I'm a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. They don't know a darn thing about it. But they have, they are told, you know, some, enough to uh, make it look like, okay. Just ask them a little bit. And you will find they fall apart. Because I'm Sally from Houston. Okay, then what was the score yesterday in this game or that game? And, you know, they'll try to make up. But it is all fake mimicry to impress the client. You see, that is, so this uh, is going to further dilute our sense of who we are. Because that, those guys making more money than the average other person, they have the flashy cars and the houses and so on. So it becomes like they are the role models. The guy who can pretend to be Dallas Cowboys fan, whose name is Sally, you know, and who has this nice business card and, uh, you know, flashy this, that, and they've given them all these symbols, uh, who goes to this pizza hut and now goes to Starbucks and doesn't want... Uh, conventional tea, but chai of Starbucks is good. That kind of a whole ideology, pop culture, is, is, a, is an issue. On the same line of thought, the grand Indian narrative can only be the grand Indian narrative if we consider ourselves Indians and not the North Indian grand narrative or the Tamil grand narrative and Telugu grand narrative. How do you prevent ourselves from being the divider and so, you know, this is, a, this is one of my uh, ongoing topics of my own research, is what is the Hindu-Indian grand narrative, 
which is so unifying, which is uh, what are the substance of it, what are the building blocks. So that is the book I was finishing when this whole Sheldon Pollock thing hit me and I put it aside, I'm about 70% done with that book where I'm addressing just that issue. Uh, and I put it aside to finish this Sheldon Pollock book which should be out in, by the summer and then I go back and finish that one. So that is a very important, very exciting, uh, it led me to some very exciting insights on what, what is the core structure and architecture of who we are and what are the positive ingredients of that. So that I want you to wait and have me back to give you a lecture on that when the book comes out. Good point. Yes, good point. So the relationship between Indian and Hindu also is part of this project I'm doing, where I'm arguing that the Hindu civilization is really the architecture, which is rich enough to accommodate everybody, but they have to be accommodated on Hindu terms. It's not you cannot come and say I'll I'll, I'll accommodate myself, but my loyalty is to the Kaaba. You can't have a loyalty extra-territorial to some other territory because that is, that is disloyalty to your country. So patriotism is required and patriotism means that your sacred geography, your sacred lands have to be where your land is and not some other place that you would consider more important to you. So there is a compromise that will have to be made. There is a battle which will have to be fought with the radicals who don't want to fight. But I'm preparing a book where I'll have all the ammunition because I don't want to start a fight I can't win. I start a fight after I've figured it out and I've done enough skirmishes, enough test battles here and there to be sure that I can prevail. And I'm very sure that when I write this book, I will be able to win that argument that the Hindu civilization has to be the foundation of the Indian civilization. Otherwise, you will not have a unified nation. There is no other unifying narrative possible. I've gone through all of them. There is a narrative which says we'll be secular, rich country with a lot of money. We'll have 9%, 10% growth rate. That's our narrative. It's not enough. It is not enough, especially in a downturn. Or when, you know, and how much can you keep people happy and unified as rich consumers who are just consuming more and more? And India, with a billion plus people, cannot be a consumer based society because of environment, shortage of water, shortage of energy, all that kind of stuff. So when you look at the alternative unifying, uh, unifying narratives. We have a constitution we respect. Okay, that's great. We will respect. But what's your deep sense of identity and history and who you are? You, if you really look at all the possibilities to keep India together, it, I, 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 I can argue very convincingly that the only solution is to have a very strong Hindu narrative as the core DNA. It's controversial, I know. But I'm not the bull in the bull fight that you are cheering. You, you have to come and help me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The word is foreign, but the thing is not. Right. I, I argue in my book, uh, Indra's Net, right. so that you can change name. Like uh, my name may have been, uh, you know. Uh, something else. Maybe I was Sanjeev and I changed it to Rajiv, but I'm the same person. 
So we are not discussing the continuity of the name. Uh, when I talk about continuity of Hinduism from Vedas onward, I am not discussing the name, but the entity it represents today is today we call it Hinduism, and other times we called it other things. So let me continue my thought. Yeah. Okay, this is a good point, and this is a very common issue with Vedantins. A lot of Vedantins uh, will say that uh, the truth is one, how is it being affected? This is what the, some guys from Shingeri Martin, New Jersey told me, uh, why are you worrying about what Sheldon Pollock is doing? Because truth is absolute and he can't touch it, this sort of an idea. We should be at that level. So what I told them is, why did Adi Shankara have to go and debate the Buddhists and the dualists? He could have easily said, truth is absolute, let them say whatever they are saying, I don't need to go and argue. The point is, all our tradition, if you look at all the exemplars, they went out and debated the people who are spreading falsehoods. Arjun has to fight. He could have easily said, truth is one. Sri Krishna could have said, why are you worrying, wasting your time? You, truth is one, it's in your heart. You are above all this. Kauravs and Pandavas, you are above Kaurav and Pandav. you are at the absolute level. Don't worry about it. He could have said that. But the lesson we are taught is that this one, this absolute, this above everything is not something aloof from the reality. In Vivarika, it is engaged. The Paramarthika absoluteness, transcendent knowledge, is enacting in the Leela of Vivarika. And it is a Vivarika realm where you do karma, where you do dharma. Otherwise, you could say, why, what is the wrong, what is, what is the problem with good karma, bad karma, good action, bad action, they're all relative, they're all mithya. So, I'm a doctor, I do something, you kill the guy, but whether he's living or dead, same thing, I could argue that way. And if they throw me in jail, jail, inside jail, outside jail, is all mithya anyway. You could argue like that, but it doesn't make sense. You have to be functional in the world. And to be functional in the world, you also have to be practical in the Vivarika sense. So the issues of Vivarika, like somebody is, is distorting our kids' identities or, or abusing them or they're feeling ashamed, are issues we have to take on. So therefore we need to create a, we need to create a sort of a, enough Kshatriyata that we can face these sort of things. Okay. Now in India there existed a time when we didn't have these threats, where we, didn't, we were safe, we were the majority and people would come and they would assimilate and we were, we, we controlled the, it was dharmic universalism rather than western universalism. The universalism prevailing in the power structure at the time was dharmic universalism. Others had to come and play by our rules. So we, we would debate on our terms. So we would always debate in Sanskrit categories. So we didn't have to sort of abandon our categories and win on their terms. We lost that somehow for whatever reason. We have to regain that. So there has to be a strategy to do it. We cannot say that since we are so high up, since I am operating at such a high level, man, 
you want to cheat me, you want to take my, my stuff from my house, you want to rip me off, you know, but the point is, why will I fight with you? Because I am at such a high level. I don't think we want to go that, we want to also be very practical about it. And you know, the thing is, I've seen this mindset of, uh, let's disengage, let's not worry about these things, from people who in their own profession would not practice this. The doctor who says this, he is not going to give up the billing. He is going to collect the billing from his patient. He is not going to say one more shunya, what matters, whether I get another shunya or not, whether it's hundred or thousand, it's only shunya. He is not going to talk like that. He is going to be very clear. This is practical life. He has got to do it. He is very clear his kids should get good SAT scores. They should get in. He is not going to say whether it's my kid or his kid is the same atma everywhere and all that. He is not confused. So when it is selfish interest, we are not confused. When the person is asked, you get out of your comfort zone, you come and fight. Then he's going to come up with all these reasons why he doesn't want to do anything. And the trick played by in the Dvayatin, who knows enough but not more, but knows enough to be dangerous, is these kind of arguments. So that is my conviction that for this time and age, you have to, probably the most important text is the Mahabharat, I think. For this time and age, because what it teaches about the Kurukshetra and what is going on, there's all kind of cunning people and wicked people and all sort of mixed up people, is very much like we are facing in the world today. So you look at the arguments given in the Mahabharat and you will see that this is not the time and place in which to sort of say, okay, you know, we let it just happen and because we are at such a high level. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, uh, I'm not in the government as in, in any official capacity. I think the people who are there understand my work. Most of them have read it. Many of them have been involved in, re in launching these books and endorsing them. So they understand this. But, you know, I can't second guess because I, I play, I pretend I'm in the driver's seat because, or do backseat driving, which is not a good th thing to do. I have to give them the chance because they are new. They have a lot of pressures. They have a lot of pressures. They have priorities. And you know, the, you, you should not uh, overestimate the uh, huge victory 
Because when you really think about it, I think it's, the popular vote was more like 30%. 30% of the voters voted for BJP, am I right? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, because a good 30% were not voting at all. So out of the seven, 7 out of 10, 3 voted, and the others were scattered here and there. And then you add some coalition people and this and that, so it comes to absolute majority. So if 3 out of 10 are voting, where are the other 7? And out of these three, some are not voting for Hindu cause. They are like my, I have some friends and relatives. They said, we hate this Hindu business, we are secular. But, you know, there's so much corruption, we want to kick out the old people. Old guard, we should kick out. Bring in Modi just to clean, clean the mess. So some of them did it because the, it was a negative vote against Sonia Gandhi and Rajiv, uh, Ravi, uh, uh, this Rahul Gandhi and all these guys and Manmohan Singh and Chidambaram. So it was more like we hate those guys, so let's vote for this fellow. It cannot be considered a reliable, long-term, sustainable thing. I think the powers, powers in the government understand the vulnerability also, that this pendulum can go back and forth. So what they have to do, we must respect. They have to strengthen this power structure. They have a lot of work to do to get some uh, changes in the Rajya Sabha. Then you can push constitutional amendment because you need Rajya Sabha votes to have constitutional amendment, not just Lok Sabha votes. And Rajya Sabha votes, uh, seats, depend on states. So you have to win more states and increase your Rajya Sabha percentage. And then you can push through constitutional amendments. So I'm sure there is a strategy. And sure they know how much risk we can take, what we cannot associate with, what some outside people can keep doing in their own name, but we can't associate with, because they have their own equations on who all they want to keep on their side, you see. And then there is the external matters. This Pakistan and China axis is going to get very dangerous. What to do about them? What to do about US? How do you compromise? So I think the moving parts before the strategic thinkers are very complex. So I have to keep doing my job. And, and, and my job, and I will tell you something, no matter who is in government, how much they want to do, India is so big and so complex that there is job for us as civic society, public intellectuals. We have to do this transformation, this thinking, this rethinking. Because people who are in the driver's seat, sometimes they're thinking very tactically. They have to make sure they're running properly. They're not able to think long term. So one of the, we have to be the ones who are putting this vision. And believe me, these, these YouTubes are watched by people, important people in India. The books are watched. Some of the blogs and the articles in our e-group are sent around here and there because I get all kind of people giving me feedback. So what we are doing with no official anything uh, has an impact. And even today, I can tell you that uh, I'm very differently received this in 2014 than, uh, say, two, three years ago. A huge difference in terms of nothing to do with government. It is just a lot of people now becoming aware of these. And you guys have helped spread this. And I'm very grateful to you. How are we doing on time, Tejan? Okay. Because I have a flight. But I'd, I'd love to stay for you know, a long time here. Yeah. Okay. Oh, this question has to do with the larger American media, and uh, I would cite an exa a recent example of uh, media prejudice. When uh, Narendra Modi came to New York, there were uh, some 18,000 people in, inside uh, Madison Square Garden, the finest of India, looking the finest, representing the finest, and you had a couple of hundred fellows standing outside shouting slogans. 
A week later, the New York Times carried an article by this character out of uh, the UK that uh, was uh, hopelessly negative. Pankaj Mishra. Pankaj Mishra. Pankaj Mishra. Yeah. He uh, also named me. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm also. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. 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 They have not done a single review of any of my works, ever. The only review they did was early on, negative review in Hindustan Times of invading the sacred, making fun of it and so on. And when Breaking India came out, Outlook magazine did a negative review. They hired uh, some very Maoist, Marxist type of, one of the Breaking India forces to do a review of my book. And, but then on the e-group, there was a, such a huge response against that. And I said, post it on their website. And about 150 comments in our favor were posted on their website. In the following issue, they did a two-page spread putting our, our, our side of comments out there. They had to do it because they could not avoid it. So I think this internet age and social media has given us a counter weapon. It is not as powerful as mainstream media because if you're, if you're an NDTV, you're reaching you know, 50 million people right away and no matter how hard you work on social media, you're not going to reach that many people. But I think the game is gradually shifting. And my favorite term in that is non-ignorable. We have to be non-ignorable. So being non-ignorable rather than being afraid is working, is working in our favor. More and more people I'm finding are interested in calling me and inviting and at least hearing me, not still the big mainstream media, but more and more of the forums, because they say that, you know, we can't, we may love you or hate you, but we cannot ignore you. And I like that because I don't care whether they love me but I don't want them to ignore me. I have something of, of my own I can say. and They don't have to uh, love me. They just have to give me a voice and I can say it. So this is going to happen because there's a lot of people here and elsewhere who are really backing this kind of idea, our idea, through social media. So social media is a device that will help us against mainstream media. Well, the thing is we have to try several things in parallel. That is just one strategy. Uh, I wish we had a journalism school. You know, the best journalism school in India in terms of prestige and getting a job, do you know it is Jamia Millia? Jamia Millia Islamic University in Delhi. They have a media school and its graduates become the big shots in NDTV, Times of India, the Hindu, all these great places. They hire graduates from there. So what a brilliant strategy for, by, uh, for the, by the Arabs. They funded this and they created uh, the next generation of journalists on their wavelength. All these uh, graduates are mostly Hindu, from Hindu families, secular, confused people. They are products of Jamia Millia, Media University. We don't have a, such a school of Hindu-oriented journalist product. We don't. Nor do we have something like Al Jazeera. What Al Jazeera is for uh, Islam created a very sophisticated, very sophisticated, not just radical kind of, very sophisticated, polished image. And what Fox News is for the, uh, the, 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 the Christian side. And what MSN, NBC is for the radical Marxist leftist kind of people. Those three ideologies are very well represented. And mark my words, 
in the next three to four years, China will acquire with billions of dollars it takes one of the major international networks for putting out their ideology. They will do that. We have not thought that way. We have not thought of, you know, these Reliance got billions of dollars and all these guys. You know, it's not out of their pocket range to take over a huge network and turn it over to our point of view. But they haven't had that vision and that they don't think that it's necessary because they're part of this Western universalism fashion. And they don't see the necessity that we need to have a very Hindu, pro-Hindu international media and rather than building it from scratch, which will take a long time, if you got enough money, just go buy one. And you know, on that one, just before I leave, there's a very nice question. I have proposed that rather than a whole network, we can start with, you know, let's have like the history channel. Let's have a itihas channel. And we give stories of, you know, we, in that we give uh, not only the Mahabharata Ramayana stories, but we also say story of the Kutub Minar, what is the true story of uh, Taj Mahal, and what is Dwarka, they're finding underwater, underground, you know, these things. So we can come up with story of Indian medicine, Indian mathematics. We can fill up the knowledge, the itihas of India channel. Every day we can have, if we had funding, and if somebody were to do it, I would quit everything and, and produce these films. Because I would have gone and told these guys, please, put that money together and we can create and it will actually be profitable also because it will generate a lot of ratings. A lot of Indians would want to watch this kind of a show. But you know, we do not have the strategic thinking of how Hinduism can be brought out uh, more, pop more powerfully. Uh, Rajiv, I have a question about, uh, uh, you talked a lot about the standard, American standard, you talked about the Chinese standard, which is emerging right now. So we also had in the past Well, it, it starts everywhere. It's not just one place. So now if you look at the Jewish, the Jewish Americans created the Israeli narrative, not people in Israel. Israel depends on the American Jews, narrative, lobbying power, economic power, Washington power, media power, so that the United States policy will keep supporting Israel. So imagine that as a counter example to what you're saying. Rather than waiting for those guys in the country to do something, we can also do something from here which benefits them, like Israel has done. Yes. So we really should strengthen that thing by the whole country also. Yes, of course. The stronger India is, the greater the narrative will be. And the stronger the Indian Americans are in their pocketbook, the greater the opportunity if they were to have the vision how to use it wisely. But I, I, my concern is we're not using it wisely. Uh, 
So this is the last question. Very good question. This is the HAF defense that we owned it and therefore we ought to have it. And I reject that defense and I wish they would not say that. If you read Being Different, the defense is not because of historically who owned it. That is not the argument. If sometimes you, you are arguing the right conclusion with the wrong method, with the wrong reasoning. And that's wrong reasoning. The argument is that yoga is inseparable from Hindu philosophy. That is what I argue. And decoupling it from Hindu philosophy distorts and compromises what yoga means. And Christianizing it is a conflict, a contradiction. There's a contradiction between Christian metaphysics and what yoga wants you to become. It, you can do yoga at the physical level and a certain amount of mental level outside of Hinduism and within the Christian context. Beyond that, you have a collision course. So the problem I have is nothing to do with the historicity of who invented it. It is not a history argument, but a philosophy argument. You follow what I'm saying? So, it, you know, if you, if, you, if you are proving that uh, a particular medical pharmaceutical formulation works very well, and the other guy's molecule, which is a twisting of this, is not doing as well for the patient, uh, the argument that I invented it and he copied it is one kind of argument. My argument is not that, but my argument is that this formulation works better than the other one that he's formulated. So the actual the yo Hindu yoga performs better because it is this is you have to understand the idea of integral unity versus synthetic unity. This is very detailed argued in being different. The Hindu yoga is an integral unity, an inseparable thing from the mantra from the, uh, the non-dual philosophical idea, the whole concept of the self, the whole concept of karma is built into the yoga practice. Okay? So these you remove in order to Christianize and then you put a history-centric narrative. What you have done is nothing to do with I invented it before you did argument, but the, philosophically and metaphysically it, you have destroyed this yoga. So this is where I have problems with some people who take the, some of these debates I started. I started these debates and they've taken them kind of in a limited way because that's how much they have understood and they've taken them to the market and become very famous. But they have, they have exposed themselves to this kind of a counter argument. My discussion never talks about give me credit because you know I was there first. It like, sounds like a whining kid. And the counter argument they give is if the medicine treats Christian or Hindu or everybody, why should they not have that medicine? Right? And that's a very valid point and they have not been able to respond to that. That's because the whole premise of the argument is a wrong premise. My argument is that the medicine won't work when you've changed the molecule to become Christianized because to comply with the Christian structure, you've had to compromise its effectiveness. So do you see the difference in my argument? Thank you.